And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. Of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. 
And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now may God bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Amen. The message I want to call today, who is leading this thing? Who is leading this thing? And like in many cases, answering a question, you largely find out the negative first. Who's not leading it? And we begin with a very specific transition that takes place. And that is Paul begins to lead. But Barnabas isn't. The words now Paul immediately indicate this issue. Barnabas perhaps was leading back in the previous verses because it was largely close to his town or his hometown. And therefore, he would be one that would know things. He would know the people. And he was largely being seen as a leader. But now Paul is the emphasis. And to make it a little more clear, when it says, and his companions, the Greek makes the emphasis clear, saying, those about him. So we can read it the same way. Here in the English Standard, it could say, now Paul and his companions. You see the emphasis or the emphasis? It's the his, and he's the leader now. Barnabas isn't the leader. And you'll see this throughout the entire thing we have read. The first thing we learn is Barnabas is not leading this. Paul, as the human agent, is leading it as a preacher. And we see another proof of this when we see that John Mark left him or left them and returned to Jerusalem. And it doesn't say why. Explicitly. However, scholars are very much agreed that John Mark leaves over a change in management, per se. None of us are, <clears throat> are ignorant of such things. Anytime you're having a change of management, you always have fallout. New leader, the people that were following the old leader, some adapt, some don't, and some leave. And John Mark's in that case. He leaves because Barnabas, his, his family member, is no longer leading the way. Paul is. And that's most likely the explanation, at least it's implicit in the text, by the language itself. And then we read, but they went on from Perga. And and by the way, you can find that John Mark is related in Colossians 4. It speaks of him exactly being a cousin there to him. So we see here uh, the next words. But... They went from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, there are several places called Antioch, and it goes back to some history because in the, especially the intertestamental period, you had a ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, and many places were named largely after him. At least that's one explanation of scholarship is saying that you have these other Antiochs. And here's the Antioch of Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, which at this time, the church is so new, right? You have them going to the place of the Jews. The church, this is not prescriptive. This is descriptive. So the church nowhere is called to go and observe the seventh day Sabbath. But the church is called to observe the first day one. And the reason for that is, is because once things begin to be unfolded, out of the envelope, per se, of the love letter of God to his church, it is clear that that Sabbath was a shadow of the true Sabbath that's fulfilled in Christ and by his death and his burial and resurrection, howbeit not eliminating a day upon which Christians are to gather. For we know that Hebrews tells us very clearly there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And Dr. Owen gives us a very clear exposition of that, making it so clear that we cannot miss it, that that specifically refers to a day upon Christians would worship. Colossians speaks about that let no one judge you concerning Sabbaths, 
And that means man-made Sabbaths upon which people were judging each other on the basis of their righteousness. But that's not the issue for the church. The issue for the church is that now that they have been saved and they understand the mercies of God, they now walk in obedience to the law because it has been put in their hearts and they now want to obey him in all the commandments of the Lord, even on the fourth commandment, to honor the Lord's day. They don't do it the same way. They now do it out of a gladness and they do it out of an evangelical obedience and they know where the rest is truly to be found because the shadow is gone and the substance of Christ has come and he is making new things beginning with the hearts and lives of people. So we find that the early church, though, is going to the synagogue and we could do a whole message just on how we have borrowed a lot from the synagogue worship. It should stand out to you just in the reading of it. Um, If you're a believer for any length of time, been in church any length of time, that you'll see many of the same kind of things. You'll see those that are in the church or some leaders. You'll see that there's a pattern in what is being said. There's a reading of the law and the prophets. There's someone who stands up and gives a word literally of exhortation. That's kind of the same thing we do as a church, isn't it? Some of the same patterns, the same standards, they float into and influence largely what the church gatherings look like even today. A man will stand up and he will lead and he will explain the word of God. That's what Paul does. Another emphasis, and we're still on the same point, and that point is, is that Barnabas is no longer leading. Paul is appointed to lead the church, to lead the gospel going into the world. And so we see, again, emphasized in verse 16, it's clear what the author wants us to get. He says, so Paul stood up. Now, if you're reading before this and you were writing the story, which you're not, but imagine if you were, you would read about Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And if you were writing this and didn't have the rest of the book, and you had to fill in something here, you might anticipate at least that the son of encouragement, when the synagogue rulers are saying, if any of you men has a word of encouragement, stand up. You would expect if Barnabas is there, the son of encouragement, he would be the man to stand up. But see, something's changed. Paul stands up. He is the leader. Barnabas has now served in a capacity of leading in many areas, but now he is the one kind of like, he's a companion there to Paul, and they will have a falling out, which shows you the church isn't that pretty in the beginning. A lot of people say, let's get back to the early church and get back to the days. Well, all you got to do is read the book of James, read a little bit of the book of Acts, and you'll find that things are not as beautiful as you may anticipate. We're not trying to restore ourselves back to these times. We're trying to take the gospel on the basis of the testimony of what God did here to the world because we know what he did here. He's going to do it a larger scale throughout time. And this history is not going out down into some black hole of despair. We're going forward on a march behind our Lord. And he, if I could compel you already to where I'm going by the end of this, he is on a white horse now. And as he is reigning in heaven, he is leading us with the sword of his mouth, conquering nations and bringing them to himself. We're not waiting for Jesus to come back on a white horse. He never promised to come back on a white horse. It's never said anywhere, the Bible, that he'll come back on a white horse. He is on a white horse now. And he's going forth to conquer the nations by the word of our Lord. How do we know this with surety? We know it because in the beginning of the book of Acts, it says clearly there That this same Jesus who left in the way you saw, he will come in that same way. So we need not doubt in the way that our second, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ will take place. He will come on the clouds. It says nothing about a white horse. It says nothing of any sort of that type of nature. That's all been brought in to the Christian church through false teaching, not true teaching. Our Lord is on the throne and it's pictured figuratively. He's on a white horse and he is sending forth his word to conquer the nations. That is what is happening. And he's using instruments 
like the Apostle Paul. And we need to be clear about that because it matters what we teach and it matters we get it right and it matters for the hope of mankind and it matters for the generations to come that they actually know what Jesus said and not merely what man-made systems have been placed on the Bible to say what people wanted to say. We see here, who's the leader? We see Paul, the preacher, is leading in one respect, but it is the word coming from the mouth of our Lord through him that we see is the true leadership. You want to know who's leading this thing? Who's leading this conquest throughout the world? It's a man who's both man and God on a white horse, his noble steed, and he is leading the church in triumph to conquer the nations. And that is extremely good news for the church especially and for all who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, so often it has been told that there's this somewhat of despair. It almost seems like the church can get caught up and just think that we are just this chaotic mess. And who's leading this? And we think maybe that the president's leading it or some king is leading it. Or we think maybe an aristocracy, a group of people is leading it. We may even think that in our own lives, in our community, or even in our church. We say, well, who's leading this? And, and let me say that it's really easy to go down that, that spiral and to begin to despair. And, and when you do, what happens? What happens? You grow in discouragement. You start getting your eyes off the true leader. You start thinking you're leading it. You start thinking that maybe other people that seem powerful and influential are leading it. But you see, the church needs to know today there's only one leading it. His name's Jesus Christ. And he's not sitting up there and twiddling his thumbs about what's going on in this world. He's actually actively involved. He's reigning and he's leading people to become followers of of him. And he's leading the church in triumph, not in shame and defeat. You see, if, if you think the government rests on your shoulders, you're going to grow depressed and discouraged. If you think the government lays on maybe a single man or, or a group of men's shoulders that may or may not be good leaders, most of the time they're going to prove not to be very good leaders at all. You're going to get quite depressed about the whole situation because you say, well, it just seems hopeless. we got these leaders and it just seems... Look at them. They're just an embarrassment. And you get discouraged because you think they're leading it. Or maybe there's one man that's like that. And you say, wow, we're really in a mess here. This is our leader. And you get sad about it, depressed about it, and you go into somewhat of a darkness about it. Why? Because you're looking at the wrong leader, church. Your eyes are on the wrong man. And perhaps... You go so far as to think nobody's leading it. It's just a vacuum. And we're just waiting for the one to come and lead it. But that's not what scripture tells us. Neither do we have a fool for a leader. Nor do we have a vacuum for a leader. We have a victor for a leader. Whose name is Jesus Christ. He hasn't left this world. He sent his spirit to dwell in man in this world. And he is ruling and reigning his church. And he is head of his church. And he is head over all things. And all that is happening, the raising up of kings and bringing them down, the making of governments and the destruction of governments are being led by him. And the good news is, if you're one of his children, you're also one of his kings. So that he has crowned you. That you might conquer sin. That you might not sit there and simply not walk on the battlefield of sanctification, but that you might glorify him with your lives and holiness. You see, what happens when we have our eyes not on the right leader is we not only grow in discouragement and despondency, but we actually grow to be more like the devil than like our leader because we don't realize we not only are in a battle, but that we are guaranteed victory in the battle. You see how significant what I'm saying here today from the word of God is. It's not just theoretical knowledge, church. 
It's not merely let me prove here's what the Bible says so that we can all say this is the right thing and we can go and argue it in accolades or we can get out on social media and tell people how much we know. No, it is calling us out of discouragement, out of despair, out of false thinking so that we would become like the firstborn from the dead and be conformed to the image of him so that he gets the glory. The church is in the business of pointing to him, like we'll see when we get to John the Baptist. But let's go forward. Paul's leading in a sense, but he's really being led by the Lord. And then we get to the next part and we think, is Israel leading this thing? Well, it's an easy answer on this one. <laughs> they're, not, they're not leading it. He tells them the God of this people, of this people Israel, chose them. So he elects them according to the flesh. A lot of people want to take the doctrine of election out of the Bible because, again, they want to lead it. They want to lead the Bible. They want to say what the Bible says. But they're not listening to what the Bible says. And here at the very beginning, when Paul's telling them their history, he tells them about election. He tells them that God is the one who chose Israel. And they were a shadow, if you will, of predestination to come of the election to come that we know is certain and good news for the believer that predestination that election that he chooses a people before the foundation of the world to be his children and to grow that people throughout the world to the end of time that election that predestination is not the shadow it's the substance it's what this election was about and we know that because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, these were an example so you wouldn't become like them. Well, what was the issue then? It was the very thing I was just talking about. It was the issue of people not living for God and not pursuing holiness and not looking to the right leader, looking at the wrong man. God chose this people from our fathers and he made this people great. Speaking of their number. It's a shadow. Do you not think he's going to make the church great in the world? If that was the shadow, imagine the substance. What if it is? As many have rightly put the question to the church. What if it is we start realizing we're still in the early church days? What if our thinking starts to go towards the reality that we're not so old yet. That's good news for those who are old, right? I mean, it's, it's quite an enchanting thing, isn't it? We're still in the early days. It may not be the early days of our personal life. And our life will come and go. But to realize that we're not so much towards the end of something. Or the fulfillment of something. Or the completion of it all. That we're part of the early building of it. Many people are looking back at history as if there's been a golden age in the idea. And that was never the thinking that caused people to cross land and sea and to bring the gospel to the natives and to cannibals and people that would kill them. It's not that type of thinking that causes the church to go on a mission to bring the gospel to people. No, when we're always looking back at a golden age of things, what happens is it defeats the church and it causes them to cower. Causes them to get an attitude, maybe hyper-Calvinistic, to where they say, well, if God wants to save them, he'll save them. But no, when we start thinking biblically in the idea that our time in reality may very well still be the early days, then we actually see ourselves as part of building and of conquest as our leader leads us to bring the word to the nations. And I believe that's the type of message we need. Because that's the message Paul's preaching out of. He chose a people. He made them great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Didn't matter where they were. Didn't matter if they were under bad leadership or good leadership. 
And with an uplifted arm, He led them out of it. And if God sees fit to lead us out of places, He'll lead us out. Because we see the testimony. He did it here. And for about 40 years, I love this, He put up with them. He put up with them in the wilderness, you know? Say that to your kids on a bad week. This child rearing is getting rough. And putting up with them in the wilderness. And it may be a wilderness for you. But of course, our Father is so benevolent that He fights for them. He destroys seven nations in the land of Canaan. And look at the fulfillment of the conquest of that time. Now we know that it wasn't There was still something to come by the end of Joshua. You know, there's something to come. But Acts is is very well modeled on the shadow of Joshua. And it says here, And he gave them their land as an inheritance. They actually had given them their land. It is as if, at a certain point in Joshua, the way it's spoken, it says not one word that God said failed to be fulfilled there. Meaning the conquest was in a sense finished. But yet you know by the end of it it's not. You know by the end of it it's a shadow. There's something more to come. By the end of Acts you know there's something more to come. Because Paul is in a Roman prison. Yes, it was fulfilled what he said he would do here. It was fulfilled the gospel will go to the Roman world. But we still know in our guts there's something more. If there weren't, we wouldn't be here. So here we see that this is what God did in the history of Israel. You know, you've got to admire the way he's telling the gospel, isn't it? He's telling it from the viewpoint of their history. He's not going in and, and all of a sudden giving them some type of a theological plan to figure all this out. But he's actually telling them, here's your history. Here's what God did in your history. And he's taking them straight to the good news. The one who truly needs to lead them. So, he tells them also about the judges. If that doesn't tell us about changes of leadership, nothing would. Again, we're still talking about Israel. Is Israel leading this? Obviously not. The judges were raised up at the inadequacy of Israel's leaders again and again and again because God alone could raise up the saviors they needed. Until Samuel the prophet. Well, it's, it's quite enough to say here that the clarity that Paul's bringing to the stage here is that Israel certainly isn't the one leading this thing. And then we get to perhaps what will be the greatest candidate of who might be the leader of this thing, and that is David. It says, first they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, 40 years. Now, you can't get around it. Paul is called Paul here because he's going to his Roman mission. He's going to the Gentiles. But his name is Saul. And he has a lot of things in common with this man named Saul, the tribe of Benjamin, being a, a Jew. You can read about Saul's biography in other letters, but... I can't imagine these things coming off his lips without him almost having that sense like John the Baptist did. I'm not the man. I'm not the one leading it. I want to tell you there's another potential candidate. He says, just like Saul, when he removed him, Saul was removed. It says he raised up David to be their king. Of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Here's something about this true leader, the Lord Jesus on his noble steed, the white horse, figuratively speaking, whose tongue you have a sword coming from his mouth so as to conquer the nations. There's something about the fact he has eyes. Well, Actually, let me just read that because I've introduced it. Chapter 19 of Revelation. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire. That's really the image I want to make sure I hit here. You see, he's able to see past the armor of David into the heart of David. That's the only leader that can do that. It says here, his eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed. You know, funny people, you know, in a Bible class be like, what's that name? Nobody knows it but himself. (laughs) But we still want to speculate. There'll be books out (laughs) written on this name that nobody knows but himself. So this is interesting how theologians work. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Why is that? Why is that? Well, I think in a lot of ways, as to tell us church, oftentimes there's things that you go through and hurts you go through, maybe even by church, that you'll never get over. And you're not meant to get over. But you're not meant to be defeated by them. Christ never got over what the unbelieving Jews did to him, what Rome did to him. He never got over the, 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 the nails that were put in his hands and the piercing of his side. He still bears the marks. There's this whole pop psychology. You need to get over it. Saw a cartoon this week written for kids. Way to deal with anger. You got to take it and throw it away. I was wondering while I was walking down the street in Jacksonville one day and all of a sudden I just got mad. Somebody threw their junk at me. What kind of silliness? What kind of nonsense? Where is that coming from? It's not coming from God, this type of dealing with your problems, your anxieties, your mind. There's one who knows how to deal with your mind. It's God. He has a sword coming from his mouth. The same one that can bring you to himself and compel you to love him is the same God that can take care of your greatest anxieties, your greatest hurts, your greatest bearings. Why would we look to any other man or any other thing? Or any other method to solve it than him. I mean, he sees past the armor of David. He has crowns on his head. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh was written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now there's, there's two reasons, too, why why this whole white horse imagery is not something of a second coming, but it's something of his reign now. The one I've already mentioned to you, and that is we know how he's going to come because Acts tells us he's going to come the same way he left. So that deals with it right away. I don't need another verse. But logically speaking, there's this idea that in this time that there are people that are going to be fighting against him. That there's going to be fighting against him and they're going to be reveling at him and, and there's going to be this war against them. Well, listen, when it comes to the second coming of Jesus, he comes back the same way he came from the clouds and every man stands before him and he judges the living and the dead on that day. There's not going to be any man shaking his fist at God anymore. That's an absolute hysterical, laughable joke. That's why he would sit in the heavens and laugh. That we but men would be sitting there fighting against God when he comes back. You know what happens when Jesus shows up bodily from heaven? Men fall down like dead men like John the apostle did. They won't so much have the strength to lift their fist. They'll only be able to say, he is Lord. That's what happens on the final day. So we know the white horse imagery is the reign of Christ in bringing the word to slay the nations. We're not going to be feasting on 
the flesh of kings. We're not cannibals. That's what follows after this. That's not. He's talking in apocalyptic language. Why does it relate to Acts? Because it is the picture of the conquest that we're reading about that began through the ministry of Paul till the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in. So we're still early on in this because there's many Gentiles that need to be brought in. When things are getting darker as the world is at this time, it seems so pivotal that we actually believe these things. Lest we grow discouraged and we lose heart and we give up. The only way you're going to give up and get discouraged and get that way is if you believe something different and you look at some other man that's leading this thing. One leading this is on a white horse, a noble steed, whose mouth has a sword of the word of God coming, whose eyes can see past the armor of David into the heart of that king. He's the one that raises up and brings down. The kingdoms and kings of this earth are nothing before him. They are a drop. In one of the places he quotes from here, I'm going to have to speed this up quite a bit, but one of the things he quotes from here he quotes from Isaiah 55. Well, it's interesting. In Isaiah 55, I believe it's here where it says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. If you look in your Bibles there, that's showing up in verse 34. He's citing Isaiah 55, 3. But what I found interesting is when I went to Isaiah, and I went to Isaiah 55 in verse 3, I read there, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Of course, he's quoting not from the Hebrew, he's quoting from the Greek translation of the Hebrew called the Septuagint. Your KJV only people will go nuts at this point. He's quoting from a translation. Yes, he's quoting from a translation. Well, notice what it says at the end of this. It goes on. I made him a witness to the peoples. A leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to me, Lord, the Lord, to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. That's something that has to be put on the front of every theological textbook and every theological teaching. His thoughts are not man's thoughts. We're not going to Scripture, and we're not going to theology, and we're not going to these things to find out what man has to say. We want to know what God has to say. And we need to be confident enough to know what He said. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, thanks be to God that man's not leading this thing. Thanks be to God that there's not a group of men leading this thing. Thanks be to God that the one leading this thing is not merely man. He is both man and God. And that he is not in a position of laxity or a position where he is simply not active. For he says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, they do not return but to water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. He says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. What do we read in Revelation? The same picture. So shall my word be. 
And so theologians and pastors with all their systems and all their accolades and all their learning, they want to quote these kind of things in convenience. And they're actually robbing the people of the comfort of the fact that this is about the word coming forth from Christ's mouth, leading this thing until he comes again. And so it says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed. What kind of Christianity is out there today often? What type of defeatist mentality is broadcast in the church? Or false optimism, if you would. Saying, come this way and give your money and plant a seed and think this way of positive thinking. And I've heard it come through these doors at times. Positive thinking. Seen it quoted on social media, professing Christians. We just need to think positive about the matter. You can think positive about it all day. It doesn't change the reality. What we want to know is the reality. The reality oftentimes is very difficult and suffering. As long as sin's in the world, you're going to deal with that. You're going to suffer for Christ's sake. But on the other hand, the reality is the word will succeed. The word will conquer. Our leader is not defeated. And so it says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty or void. It shall accomplish It's accomplishing something. It's leading in something. And it's accomplishing that which he purposes. Not Rick Warren, who gives you a cheap junk food imitation of purpose. Who's all about himself and the name of being about God. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about his purpose will be accomplished. That which he purposes shall succeed. That which he has ordained before the foundation of the world. That which is meaty and wholesome. And many are out there today and they're looking to all these men and some looking to women now to lead. To give them the next best word of the week. To make them think more positively about themselves and about their lives. Everybody's looking for a leader. Like one Christian song, take us to our leader, man. They're looking for a leader. But they're looking to the wrong leaders. They think they're leading it, or this man, or this woman's leading this thing. And you may not be able to do anything about that. You're not going to fix all of that. But you can deal and fix this today, dear Christian. You can fix the fact that you're not following the wrong leader. That you're not going down a hole of discouragement. You're not going down a way that's going to keep you from being shaped and formed and to be like Jesus. You can't do anything about the compromise out there. And beloved, you're not going to get it on YouTube. You're not going to get it from other people. You're not going to get it from other preachers. You're not going to get it from that. You get it through the ordained means of God. Question is, are you going to start trusting what he says to do? Are you going to put yourself under his authority? Are you going to start saying, I want to please you. I want to trust your means. It may feel this way at times. It may be discouraging at times. We may feel like giving up at times. But the real question is, are we following Christ? So much so that the world would actually call us Christians in mockery because we look so much like it. Not because we hold our chest out and say we are them. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And why did he send it? Romans 8 tells us the story. He tells us this. Just, just go ahead. Just go ahead and take. This is part one. This is part one. And the reason is. Is what we're saying here bears repeating. We, we need to keep coming at this. This is this is there's nothing more relevant to dealing with right now in our day. 
than to ask the question, who's leading this thing, man, and to answer it rightly. The man on the white horse with a sword coming from his mouth and whose eyes are like a flame of fire. He's leading this thing. But for now, this is, this is, this is what we can say leading up to it's not David. It's the true David. But here, here's where, what's the purpose for which he sent his word? What's the purpose his word's going out in this world? We read in chapter 8, the whole creation here is groaning. They're waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. And we know that he's saving people because we're amongst those people. We've been made to love him. We don't see him, but we believe in him. We rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. Why, how did that happen? You may say, am I a Christian today? Well, it starts with this. The way we know we're believers is not being introspective and it's not even looking to our works. It's saying, Lord, where's my heart? Do I love him? The same thing he asked Peter. Do you love him? And let me say, if you love him today, that didn't come about but by a supernatural work. That's the only thing that can make you like that. What makes you tick like that? Is that leader came to lead you. And so when we read Romans 8, it's some of the most encouraging things. When you're down and you're depressed as a believer, you go there. You should go there. It's one of the top places to go. And it speaks about even these ideas of election and the substance of them. And it tells us, it tells us of this glorious hope. It tells us of how this Lord, in the midst of this world, that all of its groans, all of its pain, is giving birth to something. And it says in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Later in the text, you read about the scoffers. They come. But we hope. And we go on hoping. And we believe. And we look to the right leader. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Notice all three persons of the Trinity are interspersed and sprinkled through our text we've read and sprinkled through here. And by the way, that's the sprinkling you need as a church, not a, a false baptism. When God calls you to be baptized, He calls you to be immersed and buried with Christ. You want to be in union with Christ. The sprinkling is a figurative picture. If you want some sprinkling, this is the type of sprinkling you want. You want the the Trinity and the, the conscience being cleansed by the blood thrown on the altar. He says the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. I remember... Uh, a guy, two guys in seminary living with a Korean guy. I'm not trying to pick on Korean. I know it's, it's uh, unpolitically correct, but we all have our culture. Koreans are very serious. If you go to Korea, I'm told that if they become Christians, they carry on their diligence in the church. They'll pray all night. They'll be on their faces before God praying. Some of that is cultural. And so when you go off to school and Bible college and things, you'll have some people staying together, getting houses together, all this. Well, one of them was this Korean guy, and he was zealous. Not so much loving, but he was zealous. And he would get up in the morning at four and pray for four hours out loud. Well, see, the thing about it in college and seminary is you're handed a stack of books for each class like this. At least, at least that's the classes I was taking. You got a lot of reading to do. And as holy as it might sound, there would have to be some imprecatory prayers going up at the very moment this man starts for four hours out loud regularly in basically the equivalent of a dorm with a bunch of guys trying to pass their tests. You know what God looks at? 
It's not a bunch of people praying out loud. It's not even a bunch of people praying out loud together in the church. It's what it looks like when we go home. And we don't utter a word in our prayer, but we bow our heads and we get on our knees. We start our day asking for God's help. That's what God looks at. It's easy to go that way and to think you're godly and holy and that you're doing something for God by your out loud prayers, your zealous diligence that can be seen by everybody. But the spirit is in you to take you to the throne and you may not say nothing on these lips, but he hears the groans of your heart to God. This one intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those for those who love God, there's the ticket. There's how we know we're not plunging and plummeting into hell. There's how we know our course has been changed, not by us. by the fact we love him. And for those who love God, that's, that's how Luke begins his letter, lovers of God. That's how he begins Acts, lovers of God. Here Paul's speaking about it. For those, that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who love him or, call, or for those who, are, those who are called according to his purpose. So here, I had lunch with a Marine this week who shared with me just of different things, but one of the things that stood out in the conversation comes to mind at this very moment is just the idea a lot of times there's just all these canned answers, right? Somebody goes through a difficulty, well, all things will work together. That's probably not the best time to quote this. The best time to quote this is now when we're in the midst of decent times. We realize that individually in our lives, this is true, so that when we go through whatever, it's true still. But it's also in the context of helping us to see what we're supposed to be doing in holiness. What is the real thing being driven to in that statement is this. For those whom he foreknew. That means not just he knew who would believe. But he decided who would believe. In the same text we read It was those appointed to eternal life believed. As one has said, it's not that it was by faith there, but those were saved to faith. That's the idea. And the correct correct connectives when we speak about it in the solas is by grace, through faith, in Christ, alone. And the Roman Catholic will go out there and say, oh, it's all by grace. Oh, yes, Christ is a part of it. All those things. And other cults will say it as well. But the big difference is alone. No matter who stands and leads, whether it be the man in the home, whether it be the man on a throne in this world, if he says anything other than the exclusivity of Jesus Christ being the leader of all, He violates the authority of the word of God, even if he swears to it and over it. So we read on. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, and here it is, conformed to the image of his son. Why? Why is it that the end goal and everything we're preaching and everything we're saying serves to make you Glorious like Jesus to make you holy like him, to make you conquer sin, to make you be able to walk in humility, to make you demonstrate the gentleness of God, to make you like Jesus in every way. Why is it that that is a goal and an ultimate goal? Why is there a goal there like that so great in your life? Because there's a penultimate goal and that penultimate goal is this. To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And that word firstborn is a title. It's a title of rights. It's a title of glory. It's a title of kingship. It's a title that flows out of Psalm 89. It's saying he's the leader. 
The one on the white horse with a sword coming from his mouth, whose vesture is dipped in blood, and whose eyes are a flame of fire that sees past our armor and into our hearts. He's leading it. That man, Christ, Jesus, our Lord. We'll try to come back and pick up next week. Let's stand together for prayer. Our Father, thank you for your grace and the opportunity to proclaim your word for your people. Do the very thing you promised to do. Make it successful. Make it successful in the hearts of this, your people, called in this place at Catherine Lake. And cause those you've gathered here today to take heart that Christ is the one leading. Not merely in the church, but in this world. He is over all. And He rules all. And we crown Him King of kings and Lord of lords. Not that He needs anything from us. But in fact, we need everything from Him. And we beg of you, As we go to this table and we observe this sacrament and we take of that which would bring to mind the way he has led us into glory by his own body and blood. That it would cause us all the more to look to him as the pioneer of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, seated at your right hand, ruling now and forever and ever. Amen. Amen. As we go to this table, just by way of instruction for those with us uh, that may not be members of the body, we encourage you to take of the supper, having confessed the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a time of introspection for any of us members or visitors. It is a time of examination. The examination is more extrospective. It is look to Christ. If any of us came here and tried to figure out within us if we were worthy enough to take of the supper, we would not take of it, none of us, if we had an ounce of humility in us. It's extrospective, meaning we do look at the fact Have we repented of our sins and trusted Christ? But largely, the question is being asked as we come to the table to examine ourselves as Scripture dictates to us in a loving way to tell us, do you know who he is? Do you know enough of Christ that you know he is a great Savior? Do you know what he bore, your sins? Do you know what he did in dying for your sins? Do you know his resurrection is the, is the declaration of your justification in him? I mean, do you know these things? Examine. Look outside of yourselves for this. Worthiness to come to this table is not found by looking within. It's found by looking without. And there's a second step you have to take in the examination at the table that we're instructed to do when we look out to Christ. Is we're to look out to his body here. Do you love each other? Do you love the family of God? Because it's right there in the supper, exactly what Paul meant. He said, some of you go ahead of yourselves and you push past the others, basically. Don't you have homes to, to, uh, to eat in? He says, this, this is not the way it's supposed to be in the church. When you are at the church and you're with God's people, you give preference to one another. You, all that you do, all that you say, everything is to be in service to your brothers and sisters. So the examination is looking without again, not just to Christ, but looking out to your brothers and sisters in this room. Because if you say you love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. And the first thing that needs to happen is salvation for you. But the best of us can at times get a little bitter spirit in us for whatever reason in our homes or here. And the table, again, brings us to have to face the matter 
to deal with that through the blood of Christ. And if we aren't so loving today, then we would utter a a silent prayer to our God and say, Oh God, I've not loved you. And I certainly haven't loved my brothers and sisters how I ought. But I'm willing that you would make me to be loving like I should. So let us pray again, Father. Do these things in our hearts that we may take worthily of the table, the cup and the bread which we might remember our Lord and we might be nourished. The benefits now applied to us by our Savior, our leader, the Lord Jesus of this gospel proclaimed in all the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You come.